You're listening to episode 161 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo! That was a really long run-on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. Whether you are a longtime listener or this is your first time, I am so happy you're here. We have Naomi Novik in today's episode, and she is best known for her novels *Uprooted*, *Spinning Silver*, and her *Temeraire* series. But before we move forward, I want to take a moment to thank Four Sigmatic, today's sponsor, supporting our work as the go-to community for storytellers. I am so excited about this partnership because Four Sigmatic is a superfood company whose mission is to take over the world with their delicious coffees, teas, and cacaos that are all made with functional mushrooms and adaptogens. I'm gonna get into all the details about that, what that means at the end of the show. So be sure to hang around with me to hear more about these guys. By the way, our storytellers receive a special 15% off, so be sure to head over to forsigmatic.com/88cupsoftea, and that's spelled F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com/88cupsoftea. Or another option is that you can use our special discount code 88cupsoftea at checkout. Now, I have a super quick favor to ask you. If you're enjoying the show and haven't hit the subscribe button or submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts just yet, I would be so grateful if you could take a moment to do that. Your reviews give our potential listeners a sneak peek on what to expect from the show, and from what I hear, the more ratings and reviews that we get, the more we get featured, so more people can find us and then join our storyteller community, and ultimately they'll feel less alone in their creative pursuits. So a huge thank you in advance for supporting 88 Cups of Tea by doing that. Also, I know I haven't mentioned this in a while, so I should probably mention this more often. But have you heard of our private Facebook group? Our group is where our listeners gather to get to know each other, hang out, and cheer each other on. So it's really fun in there. We hold weekly check-ins about your work in progress. Current reads and recommendations, and I also share updates about our podcast. Ask followers to submit listener questions for upcoming guests, and so much more. So if you haven't joined us just yet, hop on over to 88cupsofteacom/fbgroup to read the rules before joining, and I can't wait to meet you in there. Now on to today's guest. Naomi Novik is the Nebula Award-winning author of *Uprooted*, *Spinning Silver*, and her *Temeraire* series. She's also a founder of the Organization for Transformative Works and Archive of Our Own. In our conversation, she shares her love for the fandom community and how it helped her discover her passion for technology and writing. Further into the show, we dive into how she weaves computer programming and storytelling to create her art, how she tackles her writing process to help her worlds come alive, and she shares tips on the research process for historical fiction. And later on, she shares her invaluable three cardinal rules for writing that you do not want to miss out if you want to improve your craft. Also, be sure to stay till the very end of our conversation to learn more about the exciting project she's currently working on. It is so good; it gave me chills everywhere. Now, let's just jump right in. 
Hey, listeners! Ah,、uh, we have invited one of your most requested guests on the show, Naomi Novik. And、um, Naomi, it is such an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. We're so thrilled to have you here. You have a legion of fans in our community, so everyone is very excited to have you on. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for the enthusiasm. It's wonderful, and I'm so happy to be here. Naomi, you are wonderful as well. And listeners, Naomi was so sweet to jump on. She's not feeling too well yet. She's still giving us her energy and her time. So an extra thank you for that. And I would love to jump in before we start digging more about writing and your journey. Can we rewind and flash back to your first memory of how you first fell in love with storytelling? Wow.、Um, well, I don't exactly have a memory of it myself. It's one of those stories that that、um, my parents have told me. But、uh, I would say that probably、um, my journey started before I could even tell my own stories.、Um, you know, I I fell in love with with stories from my mother,、um, who who read me lots of different fairy tales. But also, at one point,、um, I got completely addicted. To in the way that small children do to、um, uh, the Disney storybook version of Peter Pan, and why why that I cannot tell you. But basically, I made them <laughs> read it to me every single night.、Um, you know, it was one of those things where I could recite every word by heart, but they still had to read it to me. And、um, and I got very dissatisfied with the ending. Where Captain Hook gets eaten by the crocodile, and I made my mother tell me make up stories for me. I couldn't make up stories for myself yet, so I literally, you know, forced my mother to to make up stories for me about the pirates、um, actually washing up on the shore of an island and、um, having to climb trees to get coconuts and all surviving and eventually like making friends with Peter Pan again. And I feel like that was really kind of、um, Uh, you know the fact that she entered into that spirit—that that is part of what opened my idea to the my mind, my little tiny unformed brain to the possibilities of making up stories of my own and making stories that I wanted to tell for myself. I read in your bio that you were raised on Polish fairy tales as one、mm-hmm. of the stories. So why specifically Polish? And I'm specifically interested in this because my baby sister has been with her boyfriend for a long time, and he's Polish,、oh. and we've gotten very close. We're, I call him my brother, and we celebrate all holidays with his family. And he just brought my little sister. To Poland just last summer,、mm-hmm. and she fell in love. I was worried she wasn't going to come back to New York. <laughs>、um, so, what what is the specific significance? Do you have family? Do you have relations to family members in Poland? Like, yes, my mother is Polish, and in fact, my father was a Polish citizen because he was born in Vilnius, which is now the capital of Lithuania, but at a time when it was part of Poland. And that, in fact, was part of how he actually and his family were able to emigrate during the basically the period of the Cold War. But my mother is a native Pole. She and her family go back there for a really long time, and were very rooted in that culture and that community. So when she came to the U.S., she actually stayed because my father was here. She came over temporarily. She was a visiting professor, and she and my father had broken up when he and his family all emigrated.、Um, but they met again, 
and she chose to stay to have a family and, um, and stay here. And so, but she really wanted to give us, me and my sister, she wanted to give us the love of her country, of her homeland that was so important to her. And one of the things that she did was she had a few Polish books, not very many. So, you know, it's my experience of Polish fairy tales and Polish culture is very different than somebody who grew up in Poland because it's so narrowly channeled through my mother's experience through the specific stories that I had. But those stories were so vivid to me, so real to me for, you know, as a child. That was that was my idea of Poland. She conveyed to me this idea of Poland as kind of this magical place full of dark forests and deep woods and the kind of fairies that appear in those fairy tales are typically not the same as sort of Disney fairy tales or or French fairy tales. They're a little more earthy, a little more witchy, and I just love them. And those are still a very vivid part of my own sort of, I would say, the cultural foundation. Yes, I guess, or topsoil, maybe is the right word. Now I can understand how deeply the traditions were rooted in just overall books and this imagination that really was planted the seed for you when you think about it. What about the upbringing of the children? How was that? Because my close relationship with my sister's boyfriend, just seeing how similar our backgrounds are, it's so crazy. Like my sister's boyfriend is actually born and raised in Poland and moved here when he was 16. So he still has a lot of Polish Mm -hmm. influence and he's very much rooted there. And my dad, he gets a bit shy with people, but boyfriend's father is one of the few people that my dad, even though they can't really speak the same language (laughs) at all, they really connect very well. And they just understand each other because of just the cultural background overall is very similar to my Asian upbringing, like my -hmm. parents' Asian upbringing in their countries. And I see how that's affected me growing up Mm -hmm. and how I was raised. I, I see is really different from kids and who best friends who've had parents who raised them who are from like generations of Americans was very different from how I was raised. So I'm very curious for you, was was that like passed on? Was there very much like school studying? That is the most important thing. Like you make sure you do that and no dilly dallying with arts. You know what I'm saying? It's it's interesting. I mean, I grew up speaking Polish at home and there was absolutely an emphasis on academics, which I think, you know, part of it is when I think I'm thinking about it now. And of course, the culture, the history, right, uh, that there was in both cultures, there was the sense that admission to higher education was very limited based on things like examinations, That was the case in Poland and in Russia for both my parents, where if you didn't pass the exams, if you didn't get good enough grades, you just didn't get a place in university. And a sense of the kind of intelligentsia, I would say, um, is the phrase that my parents grew up with, which was also very a political thing, because, of course, you know, my mother, uh, my mother was a child during World War Two and grew up under, you know, the Nazi occupation. And part of what they were trying to do was systematically destroy the Polish intelligentsia. And, you know, she was not allowed to attend school. And the value that that caused them to place on education, I was never sort of, I I would say, consciously pressured about doing well in school. 
I was doing well in school to begin with. I, I feel like if I hadn't been, possibly there might have been more pressure. But it was almost more like, well, of course you're going to work hard. Of course you're going to do well in school because it's an enormous privilege that this is even open to you. I think that sense is really it is quite strong in our family's background. The work ethic, I would say, is very similar. And I wonder, I don't know why, why that is, what, how that sort of gets rooted in a culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that that's part of how it got rooted in my mother and in my father. It's so incredible. When I read that in your bio about the Polish fairy tales, I got so excited because this is something that I feel very close to home with. My little brother, I call him, he's been bringing me to Greenpoint in Brooklyn mm-hmm. because yep, yep, yep. That he's like, this is my people. I was like, he's so cute. He's like, you have to come and shop at the supermarket. It's delicious. It's fresh. It's real. And I am a believer. I'm all about Polish supermarket food over any <laughs> American supermarket. Let me tell you. Yeah, it's actually, you know, when you if you go to Poland, which I highly recommend, I mean, it's just a wonderful country. And it's one of those things where you go into just like an ordinary, what looks like a corner bodega, like a corner deli, and you just get sliced ham. It's on a totally different level. You know, it's just like you can tell that it's, there's it's something different about how it, it's, for sure. yeah, it's just it's not being done in like factory farms on this big agriculture scale. Now I'm getting the itch to travel again, and I cannot wait to go to Poland to visit. Thank you so much for jumping into that with me. I always love talking about that. That was the background about how you got into storytelling. You also studied English literature at Brown University, and you did graduate work in computer science at Columbia University. Uh, Whoa. Okay. Can we unpack that? Brilliant genius. What? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, the wonderful thing actually about Brown is that there's no core curriculum. You don't have to take a certain sort of set of classes. It's really allows you to pursue whatever interests you have. And the good of that is that if you really know what you want to do, you can go in and sort of just do whatever you know, you want. Uh, and, and I was sure I was 100% sure I went, I went into schools like I was going to be a reporter. I specifically was going to be Lois Lane, probably if I, if I'm totally <laughs> honest in the back of my head. Um, so I went in and I was going to get a degree in the English department and, and literature's just what I loved. So I, I was piling on literature courses. And then what happened was actually my sophomore year, I ended up living in a dorm with a lot of other, it was actually, the dorm was called French House. The idea was if you wanted to speak French, I had studied French quite a lot in high school and took was taking classes at Brown as well, that you could stay there and practice French. And in practice, actually, we all just spoke English, to be honest. But <laughs> um, it was also just a nice dorm. You got to have private rooms, um, except for one room that was like this big room. But anyway, so I was on this dorm with all these other women, most of whom were science majors. And every week, we all piled into the one big double room to watch Star Trek Next Generation together. I fell in love with the show and someone out of the group told me, you know, there's a mailing list online. And that was my first introduction to the Internet. 
and before then, you know, I had had, you know, I started as a fanfic writer, I, uh, as a fangirl, basically. And I had like one friend and we were both really into Phantom of the Opera fan fiction in high school together. And I'd written some fan fiction, but I had no sense of fandom as a larger community. <laughs> Um, and so that was my sophomore year it was 94. That was the year and there wasn't even a, you know, worldwide web yet. Uh, you didn't have a web. The, there wasn't a graphical web browser. You basically connected with other people through mailing lists through a te- completely text based interface. But I got on the Star Trek mailing list. Um, and I met a lot of other, a lot of women who were writing, um, fan fiction and also just having discussions online, uh, about Star Trek and that and just being with the women around me kind of reawakened a love of science mm. that had been kind of crushed for me a little bit in bad ways, which I sort of in retrospect recognized as a kind of me sort of in the terrible way that that kids do picking up on this message that oh this isn't for girls you know this and uh and it's really just a toxic toxic thing that is very insidious you know i grew up literally my parents were both computer programmers wow. my mother was a was a professor of mathematics um, wow. in poland uh my father was a you know electrical engineer so the idea that i'd gotten somehow this sense that I wasn't that that math and science were not for me. It's like, where did that come from? But it had come from somewhere. Um, and I, uh, I had to overcome that. And that was the wonderful thing that awakened that back in me. It was good that I'd already done an enormous chunk of what I needed to do for my major. Because I would say by my senior year, my senior year, actually, I learned, um, I, I found an online, uh, there's a, uh, the software for basically running um, multi-user text-based um, computer games. It's sort of like the equivalent of World of Warcraft, except it's all text-based. And I and a group of people started one of these games based on Transformers. Wow. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was a combination of programming because you had to you had to run the software um, and you had to program various tools within the software and storytelling because you had to write uh, the descriptions of places, you know, you couldn't sort of design, visually design a room, you know, when you're playing a computer game now, if you walk into uh, a building in, you know, Witcher 3, you're actually seeing a physical, a, a visual landscape around you, but it was just words. So you had to literally describe the setting um, in text. And so it was a beautiful, a wonderful combination of, of descriptive writing. Um, and then the actual gameplay was role playing. It was like D and D style role playing where, you know, different characters, people acted out, um, what their characters were doing. And then you used like mechanics, the, almost the programmed equivalent of dice rolling to sort of give you, um, outcomes. And, uh, and so I, I spent most of my senior year working on this thing, um, and I I 
you know, ended up graduating with an English degree, um, you know, because that's what I had the credits for. But I was already really excited by um, programming, um, software engineering, um, computer games. And I essentially I spent a year working after um, after that on in sort of in a great kind of dot com startup uh environment that allowed me to to sort of be a jack of all trades um they needed somebody who was a good writer i essentially was overseeing a beta test um and and at the same time i needed to know a lot of technical stuff and the office itself was relatively new and the local and there was one systems administrator who happily you know let me join her and showed me how to like punch wire and uh and do um a lot of unix configuration and so i was able to to kind of move from that into um into working on a computer science degree and my goal was to end up working on computer games end up writing computer games and then i got to actually do one um i got to work on the expansion game to neverwinter nights um which was a, a wonderful game and the problem was that the computer game industry first of all at the time there wasn't a big um game industry presence in new york which is where I lived and I was married at that point. And also there wasn't the computer game industry, uh, unfortunately still um, it is extremely exploitative in it frequently demands, you know, hundred hour work weeks, um, this sort of ongoing crunch mode that lasts for months because you know, people invariably bite off more than they can chew um, because they're so excited about what they're building, you know, and, and, they're, and they so want to realize a creative vision that they have that it often leads them to underestimate. Uh, you know, and then, but at the same time, the people who are financing the thing are like, well, OK, but we need it by this date. Um and that tends to lead to just you know, sort of an inhuman work condition, um, which routinely relies on people not having lives, essentially, not having anyone depending on them um, and doesn't allow space for them to to build relationships where people do depend on them because, you know, they're they're constantly working. So I worked on it and I really loved it. I loved the creativity of it. but. I recognized that it was not a sort of livable life um, in many ways. And I sort of came out of it feeling like, well, now what do I do? Do I just get a sort of, you know, non-creative job as a computer programmer? Um, and my best friend said, you know, you should try writing a novel. Why? Where writing- did that come from, though? Well, I'd been writing fan fiction for about 10 years. Right. I, I knew her through fandom. And I'd been writing fan fiction as a hobby. It was the fun thing that I did when I wasn't coding. Shortly after that, I, I wrote Temeraire. That was my first book. And now I code for fun as a hobby in my spare time. And I'm writing books full time. How are you able to go back and forth so smoothly unless you see coding as almost like an art form in itself? And maybe that's why it translates over to your writing where it's not such a rigid or contrasting adjustment from one to the other. It's almost pretty smooth. Like for me, I see as completely polar opposite. 
No, you know, for me, um, in fact, I mean, the thing is, right, you know, programming um, is about is about language. Um, it's about talking to a computer in a way that it can understand. Uh, and the other piece is that, you know, I don't find programming satisfying for its own sake. Uh, I think a lot of people, you know, get get caught um, on the fact that, you know, programming, there is a portion of it. And a lot of the way it's taught is often just, you know, you just have to learn this just so that you can master this. So you have power over this material so you can, you know, do these things. And it routinely is not taught in the framework of projects that are actually interesting in their own right and that do things that you might actually want to do. I did not learn programming in order because I wanted to quote unquote be a programmer. I didn't learn it because I wanted to, you know, feel like, uh, I don't know, a master of the universe. I learned it because I wanted to build this game that me and my friends were actively going to play on. Um, I learned, you know, vastly more about programming um, because I wanted to build the archive and a software archive for for people to store their fan fiction on um and you know because i had friends who were writing stories who were using a terrible clunky like website to put them in uh, and that's in fact how i wrote a first I, I wrote like a super early first generation version um and only after i'd learned enough about it to find it worthwhile to 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 sort of be like i i really like um, being able to make these things that I want, I'd like to get better at it and understand the fundamentals of it so that I can build better things. That's when I pursued um, an education in computer science and where I really started, you know, learning it more systematically, which then does make you much better. Um, but I feel like if you don't have the foundation of seeing why it's cool and why it's fun um, and what you can do with it, then then, of course, it's boring. You know, it's sort of like imagine if people taught you cooking right um, by saying you must learn the chemical interactions between eggs and flour and um, at, at this precise temperature. Uh, and you must know exactly how all this works. But you're just making like tasteless rocks for the for you know and you're like right isn't it far more exciting to learn cooking by like having a recipe for a cake and you get it wrong and it like explodes and you know you basically have like liquid batter to eat um and it didn't work and you're like oh okay i understand there's there's probably something going on here that i'm not quite understanding and then you know you you do like seven cakes and you're like oh hey i sort of recognize that there's something something in common between all these recipes and then you're like well why why does one of these why do these recipes look the same what is going on and then maybe you get interested in the chemistry of it and maybe you don't maybe all you do is, you know, learn a little HTML and CSS to build a website because you want a website for your podcast so that you can communicate with other people. Um, that's right. That's a completely that you're coding. You are, in fact, coding just because you're not doing what looks like the opening chapter of every boring programming textbook um, does not mean that you're not actually programming. 
you are that that's literally programming um, is just writing things down in a defined way to give instructions to a computer um, or another piece of software so that it knows what to do and it knows what you want to have appear on the front end to another person that that's literally all that software is and that and and in fact i i feel quite passionate about demystifying it and taking away that sort of terrible um like a snootiness in a way uh, uh, about it because it's purely, you know, for me, it's purely practical mm. um, in the same way that, you know, things like the rules of grammar, um, nobody would ever ex- try to teach a child um, how to read by teaching them the rules of grammar. Right. You wouldn't start with the rules of grammar for <laughs> yes, like a three year old yeah. kid. You read them great storybooks. Those are such great examples. Thank you for demystifying that for me. Seriously. What is a dream coding project that you might have? Oh, um, actually, there is something that I'd like to do at some point. Um, but it's, you know, it's so bound up in writing that it's about finding the time to work on it. Um, I, I have an idea for a story that I want to tell. Have you ever read If on a Winter's Night a Traveler? No, I have not. Um, it's this wonderful book by Tala Calvino where basically, you know, each time, you know, the, the, the person is trying to find a book and they get a book um, and they read a chapter of it and they get to the next chapter and it's a different book. And it's not the book that and they are trying to find the book that they want. And it, and they are constantly, you know, ending up in different stories. And I've probably mangled that description because it's been actually so long since I've read it that, it, you know, it's I, I don't remember it clearly. But it, I want to do something uh, and then separately, um, uh, just a, a friend in fandom made the suggestion at one point, um, made a prompt for uh, a, a fan fiction challenge inspired by these these um, wonderful posters that were made by the um, Russian culture ministry, I think, that showed sort of um, some of the most famous Russian uh, monuments, buildings, and created like deep... Um, subterranean parts of them. It almost made them look like icebergs, you know, where like the piece that you actually see above the ground is a tiny fraction of the actual building uh, of the actual structure. And, you know, they were trying to convey through this visual metaphor, the idea that, um, you know, that there's that history, that these buildings have so much history underneath them, that there's so much more to learn about them than just looking at what is on the surface. Um, and one of the buildings is the, um, the, the famous onion dome, uh, cathedral in Moscow, you know, the one that you always see in every, in every TV show or movie or whatever shot of Moscow, the, the beautiful onion dome cathedral that's painted so beautifully and just vividly. And I wanted to tell us, I want to tell a story. I want to write a story, um, that is set in this building, um, where the story is different, um, and the outcomes are different based on the time that you're reading it. Um, so you pick it up and you read a chapter, um, and then you put it down and then you pick it up again and it's a different time of day, for instance. Um, and the story is continuing in a different place. You know, I'm not explaining it in enormous clear detail because once I actually 
if when I when and if I ever sit down to actually build this thing, um, I, I'd figure out exactly what how the storytelling of it would work as I built it. That's my kind of conception of it. I would love to pass the love of coding and the recognition of coding as literally just a tool to serve your ends. You know, computer science, right? Computer science on a graduate level does get to be a lot about math because then it's a lot about there's lots of it that becomes abstruse and very technical. But building software, building tools for yourself, that really isn't. And there's a lot of unnecessary mystification of it. And there's also no reason why you don't have to learn how to code everything to build the one thing that you want to make. Some of the best ways to learn programming, I think, are things like, you know, looking on Instructables or on Make. There's a lot of maker blogs and things like that where people will take you through a single specific project like cosplayers learning how to program, uh, you know, hardware devices to, just to get the right kind of lighting um, in their prop sword. Uh, and, uh, you know, things like that, like to do it for a particular project, you do enough of those little projects, you pick up things and you've built things that mattered to you and that you cared about and you learn it because it's cool to you. Um, and you, and, and also it's a specific project. So somebody else has done it and there's usually somebody to help you, um, and some sort of roadmap to follow. And then as you get, you know, it's, it's really, I think of it as in the same, I think of writing, you know, in general, the same way, um, where a lot of people, you know, for a long time, for 10 years while I was writing fanfic, I would routinely, people, people routinely get asked, like, why don't you try writing your own work? Um, why don't, why do you write? People wonder why I still write fanfiction. Um, and part of it is that fanfiction, it, is like it's part of being in a community also you're not literally you're literally doing it in in a in the context of a fandom community of other people who are all your peers within this one writing universe but the other piece of it is that it's just play and just the same way as you know people like to learn how to play piano you know, or play guitar. And many of those people will learn, some people will learn how to, you know, pick out, pick out, um, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star with one finger and go like, eh, I don't really like this. Not for me. Um, some people will really get into it and like to do it as a hobby. And a very, very tiny number of people will pr devote so much time and energy to it that they can perform as concert pianists professionally. And probably an even smaller number of people actually want to compose their own music. And it's sort of those things are all completely valid. You know, nobody's like if you take your guitar out to the park on the weekends and play, you know, Simon and Garfunkel with your friends. People aren't like, well, why aren't you at, you know, why aren't you at Juilliard? Um, why aren't you getting paid? Um, because that's, that's so clearly not the point of it. The point is to enjoy making art. And all of us as human beings like to make things. We like to make things and we like to make art. And that's, I feel like there's, there's this sense that writing has to be hard work, probably because it's, 
it's so necessary to schoolwork and it's so emphasized as schoolwork that people kind of forget that it's actually just that people start doing writing for fun and communication. This was very eye opening. And thank you for that. I love walking away from a conversation feeling like, holy moly, I just learned something really incredible and new that I never realized before. What I'm going to do right now, because usually for every episode, we weave in questions towards the end. So the first one we have is Jillian Foley. She says she'd love to know how you approach doing research for your books and how that process changed or didn't for your temporary alternate alternate history books versus your folktale books. She loved the temporary books and they feel so true to history despite being full of dragons, which is incredible. That's great. Um, it, it's actually quite a different process. Um, the Temeraire books are, you know, I'm trying to create realist dragons and I want you to believe in the dragons as not fantastical magical beasts. I want you to believe in the dragons as physical, um, you know, animals living in our world that actually work. Uh, and in order to do that, you know, what I find what I what I did was I wanted all the other details to be right. Um, and I wanted the period to feel accurate. I wanted um, so so I did a lot of very technical sort of research, um, things like uh, just making sure I got all the dates right, make sure I got all the technology right. Um, the process for that it you know, a lot of what I do uh, routinely, I will start with, um, well, actually, I should step back and say, I love the Napoleonic Wars and the history of that era. Um, since I was about 10, uh, I started reading, uh, I've read a biography of Napoleon when I was 10. I read um, Georgette Heyer when I was 10. Um, shortly after that, I read Jane Austen. Um, a lot of and, and I've just studied a lot of history of that, the history of that era and the literature of that era. And so as a result, I, I had a lot of knowledge about, um, England, about Britain in, um, the, that particular era to start with. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that it's very hard to research an era specifically to write a book in it if you have absolutely no, nowhere to start from. Um, I, I just love history in general. And I feel like if you don't have a really solid history background, it's hard to write historical fiction. On the other hand, if you don't like history, why would you want to write historical fiction? So I think it usually works out. Um, but um but so I started out with that foundation. So, you know, literally like 20 years of foundation and then built on it um, for a lot of, you know, basic details, literally things like dates. Wikipedia is fantastic. Um, there are just so many good reference works also about the age of sale. Lots of other people have been excited by it. Uh, it got much more challenging to do research on, for instance, China in the same period. Um, Africa in the same period was brutal, um, you know, because there aren't a lot of written records. A lot of the records that are written are written by colonizers who wrote down things that they were told and, um, and, and skewed them. Yeah. 
uh, you know, because they were they were there colonizing and on and like literally explicit racist philosophy. Um, and so a lot of what they wrote down, you know, things like. Um, you know, great Zimbabwe, uh, the, you got these terrible, you have these terrible accounts where people are like, um, oh, this was clearly created. These, these buildings were clearly built by like a, a white civilization that lived here. And you're like, what? What? Um, you know, and so, so much of, um, you know, period history <coughs> was, was in that vein. Um, you know, if you, I read the um, there's a diary by an officer in uh, who was on the McCartney mission to China, uh, which was at this around this period. So it was enormously useful for technical detail. Um, but it's so I mean, it's just so horribly racist uh, and, and just the and not even just racist. It's sort of like almost inhuman in the sense that. This is somebody who literally got on a ship from his homeland, traveled around the world, something almost unimaginable. You know, this was this was a months long journey and he got to a completely new country, a completely different culture. And all he could think about, the only way everything that he wrote, every description was all about making it seem worse than where he'd come from. And it was a little bit like, why did you bother to leave home? <laughs> right. Um and the, you know, part of the terrible thing is that you can tell that he was writing for a market. Um, and so, you know, those sources, um, of course, there are many more sources, but they are in Chinese that I can't read. Um, so, you know, there, there's, there's enormous amounts of, of historical stuff, um, but a lot of it has not been translated. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I was using some of these things as it, it helped to get some of those primary sources, um, in, in, despite that kind of terrible skewed mindset behind them, because it lets you, get a sense of what the mindset was, uh, you know, was uh, of the British officer of, of at least some British officers involved. Um, so, it, but it was just sort of, I don't know. It was just sort of so, so like incredibly boring um, it, in that terrible way where it's just like, you can see the anxiety dripping off every page and you're just like, just tell me what you're seeing. Talk about, you know, what, what is going on. But anyway, so that's kind of how I would try how I tried to flesh out um, my my grasp on, um, on on each different setting was read whatever primary sources I could find, read good, more modern um, books. The way I found a lot of the good sort of books, what is, um, I, I love to pass on this tip to people, which is surfing Amazon one star reviews. Mm. You find, you find a book, you find a history book on Amazon that has very bad ratings. And you look at the reviews in which people say, this book was so terrible. Um, it's, it's absolute garbage. You clearly should not read this. You should read this book instead. Um, because that's what, you know, really knowledgeable historians get really mad when they read a good <laughs> a history book that's bad and they tell people to stay away from it. Um, and so it was very useful 
um, that that's one of my best ways for finding wow, the genius. books. That I, Right. Um, because when you're doing when you're doing research as a writer for a work of fiction, um, you can't do it the way you would do research as, for instance, a graduate student making writing a doctoral thesis. Um, it, you know, it, you you can't do it the same way if what you're really interested in is telling the story of your characters. Um but you can do, but so, you know, so you read a couple of survey books, but you want to make sure you read the right ones. And that's one way to find them. The other side of that is so for the folktale books, it's completely different in that I don't want them to be set in a particular period. Um, I want them both uprooted and spinning silver um, are really set. They're they're essentially actually the story of my parents immigrant experience. Um, my, their separate immigrant experiences. And they take place in a fictional, you know, in a fictional place that does not really exist. That is, you know, I talked earlier about how my mother gave me this sense of Poland as this kind of magical place. Um, that's where they take place in this Poland that is not real. Poland and Vilnius which is actually Lithuania. So Poland, Lithuania, that it's not real. The place in my head, the place that it was in my head when I was five years old does not exist. Nobody has ever been there. Um, but nobody has ever been to, you know, the 1801 either who is alive today. Um, but nobody could go there. Um, and it is, I want it to be a fairy tale space. Uh, a little more solid than fairy tales, but I wanted that still, still that sense that at the edges of the page, at the edges of the map, um, there is just, you know, a watercolor fading out. It's not that there's a map, you know, the Temerary universe, there's a map. You can draw the globe and you can say these are the distances and you can draw it. Um, and, and it's, it's the historical globe. Um, you can't do that for uprooted and spinning silver. I don't, I don't know. I could not tell you myself what is, what is past the bounds of, um, you know, of Lithvas or of Polnia. Uh, and I wanted it that way. Um, the research that I did, I did very, I, you know, I, I tried to do very targeted amounts of research, um, inspiration, some inspirations for clothes, um, some inspirations for, uh, for places, um, you know, the, the palace in Polnia is, is inspired by Vavel, um, in, in Krakow. Um, but a lot of it, a lot of it I wanted to just leave it, to leave in that sort of vaguely crossed over inaccurate um, blurry kind of watercolor space. I, I was really it was an internal excavation more than an external research for those books. And so I think that there's there's this really big difference between how I how I approach the two. Next, we have Carly Wade. She wrote, oh, my God, I'm so excited with four exclamation marks. <laughs> Naomi Novik is brilliant. If there is time, I would love to know how she goes about making the strange and new seem familiar, especially in her uprooted spinning silver series. Does she have world building rules for herself? World building rules for myself. Um, 
you know, I think that my rule is that I don't I don't do any outlining. I don't do world building in the sense of sitting down and writing down what the aspects of a world are. Um, world building and character and plot all happen simultaneously for me. I am a discovery writer. Um, I don't I, I, I start a book when the first line comes to me and sometimes the first line gets changed, but often it doesn't. Um, but basically it's when, you know, I'm in a place with a character and what the character does tells me about the character and tells me where they, a little bit about where they are. And I just try to sort of feel my way through. Um, you know, it's very much parallel to the way Agnieszka envisions doing her magic, um, in a lot of ways. And, uh, and so I find that that the reason I think that I that it works to make those those worlds seem um, lived in to a reader is because my characters are living in those worlds and those worlds come alive through our through the through the eyes of my character who lives in that world and that's her world um, that's the world she or he knows and. Because they know it, they don't I, – I, and I do think that this is one of my – this would be one, one rule that I'd say for people um, who are thinking about how to, how to apply this idea to their own writing, which is as soon as you tell um, – you know, the way you tell the reader things about the world, um, you can tell them in a kind of uh, – stilted, unnatural, like here's information that you must have about this world in order to understand this thing that I'm about, the story that I'm about to tell you. Um, that's almost, there. The it is a common thing that I think that people do when they're a little bit anxious um, about bringing the reader along, and it's always the wrong thing to do. Um, in fact, I have a friend I know who um, literally starts every book, every fantasy book, science fiction book on the second chapter on the assumption that the first chapter is going to be basically that kind of exposition or info dump getting you into the world. And the second chapter is where things are going to start happening. And um, I, I don't want that to be the case in my own writing. And I think that it's um, it, so basically I generally feel like you just have to. You have to start your story. You have to just tell your story um, and let the reader find out things about the world as they need to know things about the world. Um, and and that it's also good to use the scaffolding of um, of the reader's expectations. You know, one of the things about that's nice about writing fan fiction um, is that you can just get straight into the story. You literally can assume that the reader knows the world, all the characters. Um, in fact, many specific, de- you can often assume that the reader knows specific plot details. For instance, if you're writing a missing scene for a movie, um, you can assume that literally the reader knows the dialogue that was spoken off screen five seconds before your story started. Um, <coughs> and, because of that, you just tell this piece of the story that really excites you and really that you are really focused on. Now, obviously, once you move away from that, once you start building your own worlds, once you start telling stories in completely different worlds, um, 
you need to tell the reader more. But I think that the training that fan fiction gives you in getting you have to just write the good parts. Um, you can't write the boring parts that you know and are not yourself particularly interested in. Um, you have to just write the fun part and assume that the reader will figure it out. You have to kind of trust the reader to come with you. And if, and in fact, there are loads of people I know who will read fan fiction in fandoms that they don't know anything about. Mm. They'll read the missing scene for the movie that they haven't seen. Um, and they can figure it out. People absolutely can figure these things out. And so I, I think that I am trained to trust the reader that, and, and to believe that the reader will care about the stuff that I care about. Um, and so I don't generally write stuff that I don't care. I don't write a scene. If I'm like, I don't want to write this scene. I'm not interested in the scene. I'll literally just skip it. Um, and I think that's, so that's, that's, I would say how I would build the, how I work on world building, but I only tell you the parts of a world that interest me. And I don't make parts of the world concrete until I need to, because that's where the story has taken me. What are some small manageable steps you could advise our writers in our community to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? I have like my three cardinal rules um, for, for writing, which is one is write a lot, um, which is obvious, but I, but often gets thrown by the wayside, which is if you're spending a lot of time outlining, if you're spending a lot of time researching, what you are not doing is writing. If you want to be a writer, writing writer is a, is a, it's a verb. Writing is a verb. You have to actually write. Um, and if you don't actually like writing, then you should not force yourself to write. You know, mm -hmm. um, writing should be a joy. It should be making art that you're making out of pleasure for yourself. And if you would rather be drawing, um, but you just sort of think like, well, I, I feel like I can write better than I can draw, um, you know, then, then no, no, do make the art that makes you happy to make, make every, and that's just make something that makes you happy. Um, and then that, that makes you happy to make, if you're enjoying the process, then you can love the product. Um, so that's the number one thing is just write. The second rule is finish a lot. Um, and that is a big mistake. I see a lot of new writers making, which is that they start one project and they don't finish it and they go on to the next project because they get a great idea and they think this idea is much better than the last idea I had. And the thing is, you know, as a writer, that's almost certainly true because the more practice you get at something, the better you get at it. If you practice beginning a story, starting your reader off at a story um, 50 times, you will be quite good at writing the start of a story. But if you never practice finishing a story, you are never going to finish things. Um, you have to practice finishing things. And so I would say that my number one rule for a relatively new writer um, is, first of all, start by writing short things and work on your endings. Because if you, once you get because also the, the um, there's a problem solving aspect to writing a longer story, um, <coughs> especially novel length. And 
you know, and the process of getting out of one scene and getting to the next scene is a problem solving process. And sometimes that problem solving happens invisibly because the story is just pouring out of you uh, and you've got so much of it imagined out. Um, but invariably, no matter how good a writer you are, you will get to a point in your writing, um, no matter how passionate you are about your story, where you're not quite sure where to go and where you don't see where the choice you're making is going to take you. And at that moment, um, if you don't have the problem solving tools that you only build with habit, um, you will not be able to find your way out and your story will die there. Um, and I routinely see stories die <laughs> that way. Um, you know, you see it a lot in fandom. People write works in progress and they post them chapter by chapter and then they get abandoned. Um, you know, after like chapter 39 and often the last 12 chapters of that abandoned story have been like meandering where the writer just clearly did not know where to go and they abandon their story and start a new one. And that's very bad for a new writer. So if you're a new writer, finish what you start. Um, and even if literally, even if you end it with like, and rocks fell and everybody died, right? <laughs> write that down, write that ending down and then see if you can think of a slightly better ending than that. <laughs> you know, if there was somebody with a gun to your head, making you end the story right here, um, you know, how would you end it? That level, you know, it doesn't mean like slog through, write a hundred thousand words um, of something that you're not enjoying. It does mean like, Okay, I'm done. I'm bored with this story. I don't want to keep writing the story. First of all, maybe that means that you should axe the last third of what you wrote and start over again um, from the last place where you were excited. Um, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe you just need to be done with that story so you can move on, in which case just come up with an ending, anything. Um, and I feel like that's that's really useful for a new writer. Once you get the skills once you have the skills, then, you know, if you start writing a story like for me, honestly, at this point, um, I, I, I just there's an enormous time cost to investing the time it takes to write a novel. I won't invest that time unless I feel like the thing I'm writing has what I like to call the crack of the bat, um, where I feel like, oh, that one's a home run. <clears throat> and there are many stories, you know, in fanfic, I will write a story. No, it's kind of a toss away, a silly story, a cracky story, a, you know, a, a crazy story, a story for a prompt that somebody gives me. Um, I, I'll just do it because it's play and, and that's fine. But if I'm going to invest a year of my life in writing and a year of my life in promo work, um, I want it to be in something that I feel is really worthwhile and where I feel like I'm saying something that I haven't quite said before. I'm inhabiting characters that are new to me. I'm telling a story in a different way, something I ha I feel like. Uh, and so I will start things and abandon them now. But, you know, I, I've been a professional writer for 14 years now. So um, now I can do that. Um, after you've written your first million words of fiction, then you can start breaking that wool um, as long as you finish things along the way. Um and then my third rule would be, um, and this is more applicable to fan fiction, um, it, it, or rather it's easier to do in the fan fiction community, which is why I think a lot of great writers recently are coming out of the fan fiction community, which is to beta read 
and get beta from, uh, and that, you know, beta reading is the, the term that people use in fandom for, um, for basically editing. Um, but having, having your friends, it, it's not a paid editor. You're having friends read your work, um, and give you advice on it. And you have to do it passionately and with love. Um, and what I mean is, a lot of times writers will do things like they'll sign up for a writing workshop or they'll sign up for a creative writing course where they trade feedback with other people in their class, with other writers who are doing it for quid pro quo. They want feedback on their writing. They are not doing it because those writers actively want to read what the person is writing. Um, and it's very hard as a newer writer. It's hard to get people to give you feedback as readers to say, I just want to read your story. And then I want your story to be even better for me. Um, but it's already, it's already making me happy. And this would make me happier. Um, that kind of feedback is extremely important to get as a writer. Um, and it's not what you get in traditional writing workshops because of that quid pro quo aspect where everybody involved is thinking about their writing and frequently they give you feedback on your writing and the feedback that they give you is based on I like something completely other than what you're doing um, and I'm going to tell you how to make your thing more like what I want more like the thing that I like um, but that's not helpful for a writer that can often send writers going completely down the wrong way um, and and if you get somebody who is not a very good writer themselves and maybe doesn't have technical suggestions in a way, um, but can give you an emotional reaction to your work, that is far more valuable. And so, you know, you need to get – but it can't be a reaction to you either. That's why you can't go to your mom. You can't go to your best friend if your best friend isn't interested in what you're writing. Um because then they are just giving you feedback because they love you. And that's not about, and the problem is that you and your work are not actually the same. Um, and so you want somebody who actually loves your work a little more than they love you. Yes. <laughs> um, ideally. <laughs> and the wonderful thing about the fanish community about writing fan fiction is that you routinely can find that because you will get people who, you know, if you look for beta readers in fan fiction, in fandom, you will find people who love the original source so much that they are on the internet looking, spending their free time looking for more stories in that original source. And if you're telling them a story in that original source, they want your story. That's what they're there for. Um, and they don't really know you personally, especially not to begin with. So they will give you feedback that's all just about your work and it's all just about making it better. And they can still give bad feedback, but it's coming from a good place. Um, and if you and, and you as a as a writer should try and give that kind of feedback to other people, um, because the process of helping other people solve their pro problem solve in their stories will teach you how to problem solve in your own work as well. So that's a very long answer. But those are my three rules. Write a lot. Finish a lot and give and get feedback from a place of love for the work. Wow. Naomi, how lucky are we? Thank you so much for sharing all of that wisdom. That is so helpful. 
So let's wrap it up with the last question is what's exciting you about your writing work? You've been giving so much to us. Tell us about what can we look at? I know Spinning Silver, the paperback is coming out May 7th. So is there anything you wanted to share that's super like really pumping you up? My next project is going to be published in two novels, in two books. Um, but I have, you know, I have basically bullied my publisher into letting me write them both <laughs> back to back before I do them. So I get to have the experience of writing a standalone. Um, and I'm sorry, but you're all that it's going to be two separate books. And it's called The Scalamance. And it's a work that's in conversation it's an ancient sort of medieval legend. Um, the Scolomance is a legend of a school uh, for wizards. And the Ooh. idea was that this was a school run by the devil. And there are a few yeah. different a few different versions of this legend. Um, I I don't know what the you know, I have not studied this legend particularly because the version that I know is the version that was like a three paragraph long um, segment in a time life book on like. Mysteries of the Occult that I found in my middle school library um, when I was when I was 12 years old. It's one of these weird things like these things stick with you. So essentially, it's about the school of magic where the school itself is almost out to kill the students um, and the students don't want to be there. They're there because their their other options are worse. It's in conversation, I would say, with Harry Potter, obviously, you know, when you're writing a book about children in a school, they're they're 15, um, 15 and 16. So it's not it's older children. But um, but it is in this school. It is an adult book. It's sort of almost aimed for people who grew up with Harry Potter. Right. Um, And I love Harry Potter. I've written Harry Potter fanfic. I'm a huge fan my daughter just had her her birthday and it was a Quidditch game. Oh my gosh, what? Yes, she you know, we we've made a dementor for Halloween. When I say like you have to give critique from a place of love, I feel that way about fan fiction also that sometimes or or response fiction um in general. But so the thing that I am not satisfied with that that like the the grit at the center of the pearl of this book is I want magic to have much more of a cost. Mm. Magic is expensive and it's not expensive in Harry Potter. Magic in Harry Potter is free and I don't believe it. And I don't fundamentally believe that magic comes without a cost. And that itself is connecting politically for me with the environment, which is is something that the climate change crisis and the sense that we are not actually paying for the luxuries that we have, that we are taking these things without actually recognizing the full cost of them. And I think that that's that's a story that's very hard to engage with because other people uh, and and the, because the price is getting paid either in the future or by other people or in other places. So those are the threads that are being woven in together into the story. My hero's name is Galadriel. Um, her, her, her mother was a Tolkien fan, much to her disgust. And so it's kind of her story. And she's in this school, essentially suffering in this school and has tremendous power, but also tremendous constraints on her power. 
and it's really kind of the story of what happened about this universe, um, how the school was formed. So we basically literally just the, the ink is wet on the contract and I have about 20,000 words of it written. I read the first chapter of it at DragonCon this past summer and people responded to it. So I'm very excited Congratulations, Naomi. That's so exciting. So when do you think we can expect to see it in the public? I've promised them the first book in June. Of 2019? Uh, Yes. And the second one, they're both going to be shorter books. I wanted to split it, actually, because it's following the year, the year, the school year process, um, which I I actually felt was was quite important um, to the story for me. I I wanted that that rhythm of the year um, that I think is is very much a part of um, of a lot of book based stories. Um, And I. So I wanted the break, but it's basically going to be I think it'll probably overall be as long as, you know, spinning silver uprooted, um, but it's going to be broken up in half. So I'm giving them the first half in June and the second half, I think, in 2020, in the March of 2020, I believe. Oh, wow. Um, and then probably in 2020 is when it's going to come out. Oh, my gosh. You have a lot of work to do. That is like it's going to be here in a blink of an eye. I'm like stressing out. Oh, my goodness. And I'm not (laughs) even the one writing. Oh, my gosh. Um, I have one more quick question about this because now I'm really curious. What are are the origins of this legend that uh, for Scalamonts? Like I do, you know, like what the background, like where it's originally from? You know, for some reason, I want to see Transylvania. Um, I'm sure it's somewhere on Wikipedia. Um, in fact, I know I've read the Wikipedia page about it, but then I kind of, I kind of backed away because I don't, it, it's a little bit like Uprooted and Spinning Silver in that I don't want to mess with my own sense of it. And it is just this idea, like it's the school and you went, and you got all this mystical knowledge. Uh, basically, it admitted 11 scholars. At the end of the of their term, once they were leaving, um, the devil would take the hindmost. The devil would keep the last one out the door, and wow. that that wizard would become his property. And it was sort of like that's the price you paid um, that you might be the one uh, who who gets his soul taken. Oh um, my gosh! I have chills and goosebumps everywhere. Naomi, hurry! <laughs> I want to read your book. Oh my gosh! On that note, I better wrap this up so I can let you go and heal, so you can quickly jump back Thank into you. writing the story. (laughs) Naomi, you've been so fantastic. I really enjoyed this conversation with you so much. Please let our listeners know where they can find you on social media to keep updated on everything that you're doing. Um, So I try to answer questions on Goodreads in spurts. I have a Twitter at Naomi Novik, and I have a website at NaomiNovik.com. And I, I tend to do social media in in sort of spurts, like basically if people leave questions for me on Goodreads, I do go there and eventually kind of go through them. Um, so I think that's probably the best place to to leave questions and get in touch with me. But also you can send questions to my webmaster through the website. And he also maintains a Facebook presence for me and will pass on stuff for me for there. And yeah, thank you. And we're going to have all those linked up. Thank you so much. And this was such a lovely conversation, actually. I have to tell you, it was wonderful questions and great talking to you. And that wraps up our episode with Naomi Novik. 
Naomi, thank you again so much for such an insightful and eye-opening conversation into the world of computer programming. I loved learning how coding and storytelling are so beautifully intertwined, and I'd like to bet that our listeners feel the same way. So thank you, thank you. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to also drop by and say hi to Naomi on Twitter at Naomi Novik. And don't forget, head over to Naomi's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Naomi dash Novik, where you can find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with shareable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout the entire conversation. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I am beyond excited about our partnership with Four Sigmatic. Growing up with an Asian immigrant upbringing from both my Taiwanese roots and my Malaysian roots, I am all too familiar with eating and drinking herbs and roots in our teas and soups and even desserts. That's all super common in Chinese medicine where non-toxic plants, otherwise known as adaptogens, are believed to help our body, like boosting the immune system and soothing muscle cramps to improving brain function and alleviating anxiety. I found Four Sigmatic at a grocery store and I immediately recognized the names of the different herbs and mushrooms I grew up having like lion's mane, reishi, cordyceps, and chaga. So Four Sigmatic specializes in these herbal drinks that support our immunity, our energy, and longevity and also help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. I'm honestly incredibly impressed at how creative they can get with their blends. And I'm talking about like infusing the superfoods into mainstream products, including mushroom coffee, mushroom elixirs, hot cacaos, matcha, superfood blends, and this makes it really accessible to those of you who've never tried it before. I know there's a ton of you coffee drinkers in our community, so you're gonna love their mushroom coffee with lion's mane that, get this, supports productivity, focus, and creativity. I even read that lion's mane has been used by Buddhist monks for thousands of years to help focus during meditation. I couldn't recommend a more perfect drink to switch out your usual go-to morning drink to kickstart the day with super focused writing sprints, for example. And just so you know, the mushroom coffee with lion's mane is made with 100% organic Arabica coffee beans and tastes just like coffee. I've tried their coffee several times with different enhancers like oat milk or ghee butter. And honestly, I swear by ghee butter and add that to nearly everything. And when I did mix the ghee butter with this coffee, it gave this really delicious nutty flavor and a creamier texture too. So that's a great tip for any of you who've never tried your coffee with ghee butter. All of their drinks are super easy to make. Just rip open their single serve packets, add hot water and voila. I also need to sneak in another recommendation of another one of their drinks called Mushroom Hot Cacao Mix with Reishi. Oh my God, this one tastes just like a cup of hot chocolate that also comes with the benefits of reducing stress. I promise one last recommendation. They have a mushroom matcha drink that I drink every morning. It's so good. All right, so I'm going to stop right here because you know I can go on. So head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea and explore all their different products. I am super pumped that they created a special offer of 15% off just for our storytellers. Head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea, and that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash 88 cups of tea, or use discount code 88 cups of tea at checkout. Thank you so much in advance for supporting a brand that believes in the future of 88 cups of tea. And I want to hear what you think about the drink. So tag me at 88 cups of tea to let me know. 
Alrighty, have a super productive week, and I will catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.